Second Samuel 16. Entire chapter will be our text today. As you're turning there, by just by way of information, our hymn following the sermon today is a new hymn for us. So I'm going to ask Joe if he would play through it once before we sing it. Uh, it's a. Some of you may be familiar with it. Those who worshipped at uh, at Church of the Covenant years ago, we we did sing it there. But I think this is new for us here at Trinity. All right, let's turn our attention then to the Word of God, Second Samuel 16, our text for today. Hear God's Word. When David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, a servant of Mephibosheth, who met him in a, with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, what do you mean to do with these? So Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. Then the king said, And where is your master, son? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem, for for he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, Here all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you, that I may find favor in your sight, my Lord, my King. Now when David, King David came to Barim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, coming from there. He came out cursing continuously as he came. And he threw stones at David and at the servants of, David, of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right, right hand and on his left. So Shimei said, to, said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil, because you are a bloodthirsty man. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please, let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you son of Zariah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all of his servants, See how my son who came from my body seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite let him alone and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and kicked up dust. Now the king and all the people who were with him became weary. So they refreshed themselves there. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with them. And so it was when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. So Absalom and Hushai said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? 
Why do you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, but whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Furthermore, whom shall I serve? Should I not serve the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so I will be in your presence. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give advice as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left, to keep house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as of one who inquired of the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, as we read accounts like this from your scriptures, we often grope for meaning. Only you can give us meaning of these things. And so we pray earnestly that your spirit would open our eyes and ears to your word, that we might discern from it those truths that you have recorded for our benefit. Help us to be faithful to it. Help us not to turn from hard sayings, but strive to understand them in all of your sovereignty. And we pray that earnestly today as we look at this passage, and we ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Brethren, I have a confession to make today as we come to this passage. Um, Let me tell you how I prepare sermons and uh, each week, how my weeks tend to go. At the beginning of the week, I will read the passage several times over and let it begin to incubate in my mind. Hopefully, that incubation process produces something beneficial on Sunday morning over the course of the week. So the, the work begins early in the week. And then by about Thursday, uh, I have in my mind a skeletal idea of what I'm going to preach. And I take the time then Thursday and Friday to put the flesh and the sinews on the skeleton. And then hopefully by Sunday morning, there's something sensible that you, you hear. That's the, the hope. This week was not like that. Uh, this past week, uh, read the passage early in the week, began to incubate. By Thursday, nothing had had broken the egg and nothing was being birthed in my mind. By Friday, there was no skeleton. And so I was feverishly thinking, how am I going to deal with this? And so I resorted to something I I try not to do, and that is I listened to several sermons on this passage in hopes of getting some understanding of the passage. Um, And so I I have to confess that much of my sermon today is not original. It is borrowed. And I say that because I want to be faithful to those whose servants who have prepared sermons on this passage to say that the, this is their work and in, in much, much of it's their work and not my own. Uh, there are portions of it that are mine. I'm not going di- to differentiate between those as I go through. I think that would be too tedious. But suffice it to say, uh, I borrowed a lot today. And I just want you to know that I want to I be open about that. Okay, enough for the, the uh, um, introduction. Over the last several chapters in 2 Samuel, we've seen a recurring theme that continues in today's chapter. And that theme 
being that despite the faithlessness of men, the faithlessness of men, despite that, God is working to perfection all his holy will. This theme of sovereignty is never absent from the scriptural narrative, but oftentimes seems to be obscure from our feeble minds. We read passages like this and wonder, how is God's sovereign acts being worked out here? This doesn't seem to make sense to me. We have, in this case, we have, we have a guy who's yelling at David and throwing stones at him and cursing him. And one of David's uh, chief military officers wants to take the man's head off. David holds him back. David says, God is bringing this curse upon me. He's the one that's, that's enlivening Shemei to do these things. Meanwhile, back in, in Jerusalem, Absalom is conspiring with, with one of uh, uh, David's close advisors, Ahithophel. That was David's closest advisor. Has now gone over to the other side to Absalom. Absalom saying, oh, you need to poke David in the eye and you need to have his concubines as your own. And he will hate you all the more. And then the people of Israel will side with you. In the meantime, David has sent a, a, a fellow over there as a spy who's actually going to be in the court of Absalom. All this intrigue, all of this, it sounds like the United States and the Russians. And Well, it sounds odd, doesn't it? And, and where, is the, where is the sensibility of all this? Where is God's handiwork going? How is it threading through this? Well, as I, I considered these things and as I listened to the sermons that I mentioned to you, many of the commentators on this passage, and by the way, there aren't many sermons on this passage. There aren't many. I may have listened to all of them. Uh, all three of them. <laughs> um, there is one recurring thing that, that each of these men uh, pointed out, and that these, these are things that are foreshadowing the Savior. And you're thinking, these foreshadow the Savior? How is that even possible? Well, I hope to give you some of that notion. But think about, think about a shadow. You're walking down the street on a sunny day. The sun's behind you. It casts a shadow before you. The shadow, eh, it's a bit obscure, isn't it? I mean, it is you, but it's not a good representation of you, is it? There's a discernible person there, and it's, you probably, if you turn to the profile, you know, you see your nose, at least I would, and, and, and it would be discernible that it was me, but it, 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 it's not a clear picture. It's, a, it's an obscure picture. Well, these men have all come to the conclusion, these are obscure pictures of our Savior. And, and these are happening a century before Christ. And yet, they are pointing to Christ. This would not become clear to, to the people of God until after Christ would actually come. Then they would look back into these Old Testament narratives, people like us. We live post-resurrection. We live post-crucifixion. We understand what took place in the life of our Savior. And we understand that Jesus was a son of David. And that's not just a, uh, a, a, a statement about his genealogy. He was like David. Supposedly like David. A man after God's own heart. Now we know David was a sinner. I'm going to talk about that here in a few minutes. But... Nevertheless, the, the, the shadow that David is casting, when we get to Christ, becomes very clear. It's a, it's, a, it's a persona that Christ lives out. And yet, even in this passage, 
That shadow is being foretold, foretold, forecasted in David. So I want us to give thought to that. All right, let's go through the, the passage a little bit and then uh, and, and consider some of this foreshadowing of Christ. Conf- let's consider the various actors in the passage. David is on the mountain uh, top opposite Jerusalem. He's crossed the Kidron through the Kindred Valley. He's gone up to the Mount of Olives, Mount of Olivet, as we saw last week in the passage. So he's on top of the Mount of Olives, and even that foreshadows Christ, doesn't it? Didn't Christ go to the Mount of Olives before his crucifixion and spend time in prayer there? David goes there to, to seek the face of the Lord. As he gets there, he's confronted by Ziba again. You remember Ziba? Ziba is, the, is a servant of Saul who was the one who found Mephibosheth when David sought someone from the house of Saul to show mercy and grace toward. Ziba is the one that said, well, yeah, there is a son of Saul who remains. He's, he's lame in both feet. He's a crippled man. His name's Mephibosheth. David sends Ziba to get him and bring him back, and he gives him uh, all of the, many of the lands of his father Saul. He sets him at his table in the palace. He part, becomes part of David's household. Uh, even though uh, he was uh, a son of Saul, the, the man who tried to kill David. David shows mercy uh, to Mephibosheth. Ziba is his servant, and Ziba was supposed to manage all of his holdings, all of Mephibosheth's holdings. Ziba shows up on the top of Mount, the Mount of Olives, and lo and behold, he's got two donkeys, and they're laden with things, provisions for uh, David's people. That's the first person that comes into the passage. The next being Shimei, a man from the house of Saul. Here's another man from the house of Saul. Not, we're not sure exactly uh, how his, what his relationship is. The passage doesn't tell, tell us. But he's the one who's going to curse David. And, and uh, who Abishai, Joab's brother, Joab being David's chief uh, general, uh, Abishai being... Uh, his brother, a, a lesser general, but none, nonetheless a, a military man in David's army. He wants to take off uh, Shimei's... Uh, he wants to silence Shimei by taking off his head. And then meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, Ahithophel, David's former close advisor, is counseling Absalom to violate God's law by taking David's concubines. And then there's Hushai, a loyal and trusted confidant of David, who David has sent back to Absalom's palace for a twofold purpose. First, he is to thwart the counsel of Ahithophel. He, David actually has a, a, a compassion on Absalom. He, he knows that Ahithophel is going to lead him astray. And he sends this man, Hushai, to thwart Ahithophel's counsel. But he also wants uh, uh, to, uh, who's shy to report on what's happening in Absalom's house. He's a spy. I, I don't think David's desire here to find out what's happening in Absalom's house is, to, is for the purpose of, of having some kind of military conquest over Absalom. No, I think he's genuinely concerned for his son. His son is acting, he's, his son is acting the rogue, which he's being accused of himself. Uh, but the son is acting as the rogue, and, and David has concern for that. that. This whole account is better than any spy novel or intrigue of Shakespeare's tragedies 
then you can imagine this is real life stuff. These are real men. These things really happened. This is not some fanciful story. This is an account of history. This historically happened. All of these things happened. Can you imagine this man on the opposite side of the Kidron Valley yelling at David and cursing him and kicking the dust up and throwing stones across the the gorge? It sounds almost comical, and yet it actually happened. And Ziba, he shows up on the top of Mount Olive. The Mount Olives. He's got these two donkeys laden with all kinds of stuff. What do you think he's doing? Well, I'll, I'll make mention of that in a moment. I think he's currying favors, what he's trying to do. Uh, I think he's, he's, his, his true colors are not going to be shown for a couple more chapters. But he's not, he's not a kind man in this circumstance. I think he's trying to curry favor. Well, all of this is, as I've said, these things are actual events that happened in history. And all of this points uh, to Christ. Many of these activities foreshadow the activities of those men that surrounded our Savior while He was here on earth, particularly those activities immediately preceding our Lord's crucifixion. For example, Shimei falsely accuses David just as the people of Israel Israel falsely accused our Lord. Yes, David did have the blood of Uriah the Hittite on his hands, but Shimei accuses David of the blood of Saul's house. Which, if you'll remember back, David was scrupulous in not allowing anyone to raise their hand against the Lord's anointed. He had three occasions where he could have taken the life of Saul, and he refused to do it, despite the fact that Joab and all of his military advisors were pressuring him to take the life of the one who was pursuing him. And yet David refused to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. He refused to do that. So there we have a similarity, a similarity uh, between these two men. Uh, Similarly, uh, Ahithophel in some ways can be likened to Judas Iscariot who betrayed the Lord to the Sanhedrin and ultimately the Romans. Was he not betraying David to Absalom? We often think of Judas as as sulking in the shadows of the disciples, awaiting the proper time to turn on our Lord and betray Him to His enemies. I don't think that's an accurate portrayal of Judas. That's not the description that we have in the Scriptures. Many things seem to mitigate such a description, such as in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, the first four verses, we read there, and He called Him called to him his twelve disciples, speaking of Jesus, Matthew speaking of Jesus in chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. He called to him his disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these, first Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, Here we have another tax collector today. We already heard of uh, Zacchaeus. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Brethren, Judas Iscariot healed those who were with diseases and cast out demons in Matthew chapter 10. Is that somebody sulking in the background as if he was not part of the twelve? Is it not true at, 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 on, on Maundy Thursday, when, when the Lord was serving the, the Lord's Supper for the very first time, 
and his disciples were there, he said, the one who's bet- who will betray me, his hand is at the table, and his disciples had no idea who it was. No idea. Now how is it that this man had such bitterness toward our Lord that he could hide so easily amongst the very apostles of God? He was given the power to cast out demons and heal those who were sick. Later, he would not be revealed at the, at the Passover table. Then there's the seemingly inconsistent circumstance of Judas's suicide after he betrays our Lord. Why on earth would he commit suicide? If he was this bitter man toward Christ, why would he commit suicide? He had accomplished his goal, had he not? Jesus had been taken. He would be crucified. He's going to die. And yet Judas is so despondent, he commits suicide. Seems to be inconsistent. Is Judas, had Judas truly exact, exacted the very thing he'd hoped to accomplish? The death of Christ? Or was he hoping something else was actually going to happen? One commentator, and I actually happen to agree with this commentator, believes that Judas truly wanted to see Jesus assert his power against the Romans, overthrowing their kingdom and establishing the kingly rule of Israel. In Judas' mind, Jesus needed a reason to assert that power. As Judas had seen him cast out demons, raise the dead, walk on the water, calm the winds, all of these mighty acts by our Lord, Jesus had the power to overthrow the Romans, He merely needed the right opportunity. And I believe Judas thought he was giving that opportunity to Christ. He was bringing the Romans to him. What Judas did not understand was that Jesus would conquer the world not by the might of His arm, but by dying. By dying. He was there to do the will of the Father, which had been told to His disciples many times before that He must die to do the will of His Father. And yet, they had never embraced that notion. In our text, Ahithophel, as we shall see in a few weeks, will ultimately commit suicide just as Judas does after after him, many years after him. Both men were close confidants of their respective kings, And both were betrayers. They would also both meet their ends in suicide. So what about Abishai, the son of Zariah? He is likened unto Peter who is ready at any moment to pick up a sword and seemingly defend his king. Abishai wants to silence Hushai's tongue by removing it at the neck. And David stays the hand of Abishai and states very plainly in verse 10, So let him curse! Because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done this? David at this point is showing a very real contempt for Abishai's desire to use the sword when he rightly perceives the Lord has brought about Hushai's taunting. A taunting for this very time in David's life. David had sinned against all Israel and deserved humiliation. He bore that humiliation for the honor of God. Now there is a similarity here to our Savior. Unlike David, our Savior never deserved His humiliation. Jesus never sinned, and so never deserved 
the death that he incurred. He didn't deserve it. However, the Scriptures are clear in 1 Corinthians 5.21 where it reads, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus had not borne any sin of His own to the cross, but He did bear our sins on the cross. He did bear our sins on the cross. And was He not shamed going to the cross? Was He not shamed and humiliated? Indeed, He was. Though Jesus lived a sinful life, He became sin for us, taking our sins so we might not suffer the shameful humiliation of suffering and death which each of us truly deserves. If you've never bowed your knee to Christ, thanking Him for His sacrificial gift of dying on the cross for you and rising the third day for your justification, brethren, today is the day of salvation. That's what you deserved. The death on the cross. That's what you deserved. And Jesus took it for us. Well, these various accounts are so many foreshadows of what becomes so very clear in the life of our Savior. And yes, again, I say foreshadow. Again, think about a shadow that's being cast before you. It's a little bit obscure, but the image is there, is it not? You can see the image. This is what's happening in the life of David. The image of a Savior in David's life is being foreshadowed here. Though obscured, not very clear at times, it's there. And I believe that's one of the lessons in our passage today. So what do men take away from this passage today? What do we as believers, what does the church take away? I believe there is one great lesson that we should embrace, but it has many moving parts. I don't have time to go through the parts, so I'll just tell you the great lesson. The great lesson is found in one verse from Deuteronomy chapter 29. And that's verse 29. And it reads, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Now, how does that fit with the passage today? Well, we must as believers come to grips with the understanding that the eternal decree of God in all its details is known to God alone. The eternal decree is known to God alone. We shall never know or understand the minutia of its details. Ever. We will never know that. If we did know those minutiae, that minutiae and all its details, we would be like God. And we are creatures. We can never rise to that level. God has not revealed it to us, nor shall He, the minutiae of His decree. It belongs to Him and Him alone. Part of the problem with men is that we desire to know all those things when we should be a lot more humble about that. I, I'm forgetting many things these days. I just asked my wife. I, there's no way I could understand the minutiae of God's decree. But what He has revealed to us in Deuteronomy 29.29 is for us and for our children forever. And that revelation is given for a purpose that we may do all the words of His law. I believe that that's what David was embracing 
as he stood on the Mount of Olives, as he left Jerusalem, as he, as he gives thought to his own life, he says, I have to embrace what God has given me in his revelation. I have to teach that to my children. And I have failed with Absalom. I have failed miserably. I think David still has great compassion for Absalom. And I think it's shown in the coming chapters. And yet, he will not break through to Absalom. Absalom's sin will take him down to death. But the secret things belong to God, and those things that are revealed, we are to embrace for the glory of God. God has graciously given us what is necessary for life and godliness. We are not left deficient. From this passage in Deuteronomy 29.29, we see that life and godliness does not mean an absence of trial or heartaches. And that's com- that comes out in the, in the text today as well. Life and godliness doesn't mean an absence of heartache and trial. What it does mean is that God can and does overcome even the greatest of trials and tribulations for His glory and the good of His people. And we who are the apple of His eye, He chose us unto Himself. He chose those who put their trust in Christ. He's chose you as His child. He's adopted you. He's, he's called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. He's put your feet on a solid rock. And He's promised you eternal life. You're the apple of His eye. For those of us who are the apple of God's eye, we, have, we ought to take great comfort in what has been revealed to us. What God has given us. And we can be comforted in the midst of tumultuous circumstances. We've got so many things to pray for. We have families whose children are on the verge of death. We're going to be praying for in just a moment a child who has already died. Can you imagine the grief that these families are going through? Some of you have have suffered through those kinds of griefs. The loss of a child. uh, The loss of a a sibling. Um, Great trials in, in physical health. Some of you are going through those as well. All of that God is, redou- is doing in our lives to bring glory to Himself and good for His people. God's decree is not being thwarted by, uh, by those who are breaking His commandments. We see that here in the passage. We're going to see it even more in the coming weeks. It is seemingly where there is no hope that the glorious Savior shines forth with giving us newness of life. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. The great profound mystery of the Scriptures is how can so many bad things redound to so much good? The killing of the Savior of the world actually brings about life. And not just any life, abundant life. Brethren, I close with a catechetical question and an answer that are familiar to us that I think will be helpful as we close the sermon today. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, both with life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me 
that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. What Christ has purchased for us is sufficient, brethren. And we are to embrace that with thanksgiving in our hearts. And to live through the trials that God brings our way with thanksgiving, trusting that He will raise us up to newness of life. Let us pray together.